It is good to be with you this morning. Anytime I hear the song Amazing Grace, I can't help but think of the story of John Newton, the author of the song. If you're not familiar with this story, I would encourage you to read about it. It is a powerful story. And one of the things he said at the very end of his life is he said, although my memory's fading, two things I remember clearly. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. Amen. Well, I'm grateful to be here with all of you. Uh, I'm grateful for our partnership in the gospel through the Three Strand Network. And that has been a great source of encouragement uh, to me personally, and I know to the other churches as well. And this certainly has been a challenging and difficult year, but one place where I have found encouragement is through the relationships within the Three Strand Network. I've appreciated the times and the pastors and the elders of the Three Strand Network have been able to discuss different things and work through different issues together. That has been extremely helpful. And I am really grateful for the wisdom of the elders of Crossway Fellowship and the conversations I've had with Pastor Sean. I know that uh, I can attest to what he has said, that there has been quite a bit of a division this year. But one thing that you can be confident about is that your elders are seeking to lead you in accordance with God's word. They understand that God's word is our ultimate and final authority, and therefore they are diligently working to lead you in a manner that is consistent with and faithful to God's word. And brothers and sisters, I encourage you to thank God for that. Thank God for that. Rejoice in that. Express your gratitude to your elders as they are seeking to faithfully shepherd you in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. Well, one of the things I remember clearly from my three years in Spanish class in high school is the phrase chicle en la basura. Chicle en la basura. And the reason I remember that phrase from my days in high school Spanish class is because our teacher had a zero tolerance policy regarding chewing gum in Spanish class. And so every single day, as we walked into a class, she would point to the garbage can and she would say, Chicle en la basura. Now, when a teacher or a parent or any kind of instructor wants to get a message across, to the student, to a child, to whoever is learning, they will repeat certain themes, they will repeat certain phrases, they will repeat certain words in order to ingrain them in our minds. And this morning we are going to be going through Mark chapter 10 verses 32 through 45. And one of the things we see in the gospel of Mark is the repetition of certain themes. And when a particular theme is repeated in Scripture, it is good for us to recognize that this theme is an important point of emphasis. In other words, when a theme is repeated, we should understand that the Lord is trying to impress something important on us. When we study the Bible, we ought to expect that the Lord is working to accomplish something in us. And when we see the repetition of a particular theme, we need to recognize that the Lord expects us to, one, think carefully about what is being taught, and two, work diligently to apply it to our lives. The theme that is repeated in our text this morning is the theme of servitude and humility in the life of a disciple. And it's not a coincidence that we see this theme come up three times in chapters 8 through 10 of Mark's gospel, each 
time immediately following a prediction by Jesus of his death and resurrection. In chapter 8, we saw how Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. And then Jesus predicted for the first time, or foretold for the first time, that he would die, but then he would rise again. And Peter rebuked him as if to say, no, 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 that's not the way. I just said you're the Messiah. That's not how this is going to go down. That's not how it works. And Jesus had to counter-rebuke Peter and say, get behind me, Satan. And then Jesus proceeded to teach them that if anyone would come after him, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus foretold of his death and resurrection a second time. Disciples didn't seem to fully understand it because they proceeded to argue amongst themselves regarding which one was the greatest. And Jesus had to correct them once again. In our text this morning, we will see how Jesus predicted, foretold of his death and resurrection for the third time. And we will also see how his disciples failed to understand this once again and then see what he proceeded to teach them. So let's read. I'm going to read Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus and his disciples continued their journey. And for the first time, Mark revealed their destination. Jesus was leading his disciples to Jerusalem. And in our passage, they drew near to the city. And Mark said that they were on the road going up to the city, which makes sense because Jerusalem was just 20 miles from Jericho, but was 3,500 feet higher in elevation. But despite the strenuous hike up to Jerusalem and despite the opposition that awaited him there, Jesus led the way. And as they were going, Jesus pulled the 12 aside and for the third time, he told them what was going to transpire once they reached Jerusalem. For the third time, he predicted his death 
and resurrection. He provided a few more details in this particular case. He spoke of how he was going to be handed over to the Gentiles, so the non-Jewish people, in order to be put to death. Mark doesn't tell us how the disciples reacted when Jesus told them for the third time that he was going to suffer, die, and rise again. But from what we read next, we get the impression that it did not seem to sink in. Shortly after he told them what was about to transpire, he was approached by two of his disciples, James and John, who were brothers. And they had an agenda. They said, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, whenever I read that phrase, I immediately think, the nerve of these guys. They had some nerve to go up to Jesus and say, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. They wanted Jesus to commit ahead of time to granting their request without knowing what their request was. Can you imagine how this would go if you tried to do this? Imagine if a child goes to a parent and says, mom, dad, I want you to give me whatever I ask. Imagine saying that to a spouse. Imagine saying that to anybody. I mean, That does not tend to go over well. Who wants to commit to agreeing to give somebody something without knowing what it is? We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, Jesus could have responded in a number of ways. He could have quickly rebuked them and shut them down. But he did not shut them down. Instead, he said, what do you want me to do for you? Now, that was a great question. Instead of immediately rebuking them, instead of correcting them, instead of coming down on them, he asks a question to reveal and expose their hearts. What do you want? That is a question that reveals our hearts. What do you want? What do you want most? Jesus was going to tease it out. He was going to make them say what it is, what it was that they wanted. And they responded. They said, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. As they approached Jerusalem, James and John, as well as the other disciples, probably had a vision of how things were going to go down. After all, they had already witnessed Jesus perform extraordinary miracles. They had seen him heal the sick, raise the dead, feed thousands of people with a very small amount of food. They had heard his teaching. His teaching was profound. They had come to believe that he had been sent from God. They had come to believe that he was, in fact, the Messiah, God's anointed king, whom he had promised would come to save his people. As they approached Jerusalem, they likely had a vision that the Messiah, God's anointed king, was going to be received in a glorious manner and ascend to his throne to establish God's kingdom. And when Jesus came into his glory, they wanted to be right next to Jesus on either side. They wanted to preemptively secure the places of honor next to the king before they got to Jerusalem. James and John wanted glory and fame for themselves. It wasn't enough for them to be one of the 12 disciples. It wasn't enough to be in the top 12. They wanted to be right next to him at his right hand and his left hand. 
As I mentioned before, Jesus had tried to impress upon the 12 the cost of following him. In chapter 8, he taught the disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels will save it. In chapter 9, he told them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. But James and John had seemingly brushed that teaching aside and were only thinking of the rewards. James Edwards said, they are quick to claim the benefits of God's kingdom, but slow to hear the costs of participating in it. Their request was self-serving, contrary to what Jesus taught, and offensive to the other 10 disciples. And it's easy for us to shake our heads and think, wow, these guys really missed it. They missed the boat on this one. But brothers and sisters, we need to be reminded of what Jesus taught just as much as they did. We need the teachings of Jesus to be impressed upon our hearts time and time again. We need the repetition of these teachings because we too will quickly dismiss and forget what Jesus commanded. We need to be willing to ask ourselves the tough questions. How much do we desire to be elevated and honored? How much do we desire to be recognized and respected by others. You see, this desire that they had for glory was not a unique desire to them. This is a common temptation for all of us. We can easily fall into the temptation of seeking glory for ourselves, seeking respect and honor for ourselves. We want others to think highly of us. We want to be held in high esteem but we need to wage war against this temptation. We need to pray what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 115 where he said, not to us, O Lord, but to your name give glory. What a wonderful prayer. Not to us. We are not seeking glory for ourselves, but we are seeking your glory. Help us, Lord, to bring glory to your name, not our name. That ought to be our prayer. That should be our desire. That should be what we are pursuing rather than glory for ourselves. Jesus responded to their request by telling them, you really don't know what you are asking. Then he asked them a question that they probably did not understand. He said, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And when he asked this question, he was referring to the suffering he was about to undergo. This imagery of a cup we see used in the Old Testament. Sometimes it's used of God's blessings being poured out, but more often this imagery of a cup being poured out referred to God's wrath. For example, in Isaiah chapter 51, verse 17, we read, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. And so this imagery of this cup being poured out or drinking from this cup was a reference to God's wrath being poured out. And baptism, in this particular case, was being used by Jesus as imagery pointing also to his death. And so the question that Jesus asked required a negative response. The answer would be, No. 
Because Jesus uniquely suffered and died for sinners. Jesus was the only one who could absorb the wrath of God on behalf of sinful people. No one else could do that. No one else can serve as our substitute to take the punishment for our sin, to make atonement for our sin on our behalf. But James and John did not understand this, and therefore they unwittingly answered, we are able. Now at this point, we might expect Jesus to say, no, you still don't understand it. You still don't get it. You're totally missing it. You don't understand what I've come to do. You don't understand how I'm going to accomplish this. But surprisingly, Jesus seems to concede, at least to some degree, that they were right. He said, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. You see, in one sense, the answer to his original question of, can you drink the cup I drink and be baptized with my baptism was yes and no. In one sense, it was no because as I stated, Jesus would uniquely suffer on behalf of sinners. He would uniquely absorb the wrath of God as he died upon the cross. When he died, it was not only humiliating. It was not only extremely painful he also endured the wrath of God being poured out on him at the cross, which is why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So in one sense, the disciples could not drink from the cup that he drank, could not be baptized with his baptism, but in another sense, the answer was yes. In another sense, the answer was yes, because as his followers, they too would suffer because of his name. And they too would die untimely deaths because of his name. And so in one sense, they could not drink from his cup. They could not be baptized with his baptism. But in another sense, they could and they would. But in regard to their original request to sit at the right and left hand of Jesus, he told them that decision was in the hands of the Father. Now, when the other ten heard about the request of James and John, they became angry. But it was not righteous anger. It was not righteous anger in the sense that they were not angry at something that would make God angry. right? They were angry because they thought James and John were trying to get one step ahead of them. They thought James and John were angling for something that they wanted as well. And we know their motivation was wrong because of what Jesus taught them in order to bring correction. Jesus had to once again show them how their desires were contrary to the true nature of discipleship. He had to address what they wanted. He said, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. In the world, people want power. And oftentimes, those who have power like demonstrating that they have power, especially to those whom they have power over. People will do all kinds of sinful things in order to gain power. And then people will wield power in all kinds of sinful ways. This is normal. 
Power is an idol. Jesus told his disciples, but you are not to fall into that pattern. You are not to pursue what the world pursues. Instead, you are to pursue something entirely different. He said, this shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. In the kingdom of God, greatness is defined in a way that is contrary to the world. He said, if you want to be great, you must be a servant of all. And the word there for servant implies one who waits tables. He says, you must lower yourself to someone who waits on other people, who serves them. You must lower yourself, be willing to be humble and serve the needs of others. And that word slave implies belonging to someone else. We belong to someone else. First and foremost, we belong to Jesus. We are his, and therefore we do his will. We do his bidding. Jesus described the nature of discipleship in subservient terms. And then Jesus provided them with the reason they were to become servants and slaves. He wasn't simply trying to provide them with a new and distinct ethic by which they should live. No, he was teaching them the way of the Lord, the way of the Savior, the way of the Messiah. In the Old Testament, there are several teachings which provided different pictures describing the one who would come. For example, in the book of Daniel, we read about the Son of Man. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, we read, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And so we see here this son of man is one who receives an eternal kingdom and is given dominion and glory so that all people should worship him. When Jesus refers to the Son of Man, refers to himself as the Son of Man, he was most likely referring to this language we see here in the book of Daniel. We also read about the one who would come in the book of Isaiah. For example, in Isaiah chapter 53, we read about the suffering servant. Listen to verses 3 through 6 where we read, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here in the book of Isaiah, we see the one who is to come described as one who will suffer as a servant. One who will be despised. One who will be rejected. 
So on the one hand, we have this picture of the one to come who is described as this glorious figure, this glorious son of man who will receive a kingdom, an everlasting, eternal kingdom, who will receive glory and honor, who will be worshipped by all people. And then we also have this picture of of the one who, to come, who, will to come, uh, who is to come as, as one who suffers, who is despised, who is lowly and rejected. And what we see in our passage this morning is that both of these realities come together in the person of Jesus. He said, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And brothers and sisters, this is the heart of the gospel. Jesus, the King of kings, the Son of Man, the one who is given an eternal kingdom, who has glory and dominion, who will be worshipped by all people, came into the world not to be served, though he deserves to be served, but in order to serve others, to serve to the degree that he will give his life up as a ransom for many. Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Messiah, God's anointed and chosen king, came into the world in a lowly manner, in a humble way, in order to take on the role of a servant so that he could save sinful people like you and I, so that he could ransom us, so that we might belong to him. This is the good news. Now, everyone who repents of their sins and believes in Jesus will be saved. Do you see that we have the greatest motivation of all to humble ourselves and serve others? We have the greatest motivation of all because we serve the one who came to serve us. We are the beneficiaries of his humility and servitude. We are saved because he was willing to humble himself for our sake. He was willing to serve us. He did this for us. What greater motivation do we need to serve others? To humble ourselves for the sake of others. We have the motivation because Jesus has done so for us. Again, James Edwards writes, This model of ministry cannot come from secular order but only from the unique way of Jesus, which defies the logic of this world and its fascination with dominance, control, yields, results, and outcomes. The key to the model both incarnated and commanded by Jesus is in the verbs to serve and to give. The reason why a servant is the most preeminent position in the kingdom of God is that the sole function of a servant is to give and giving is the essence of God. This passage teaches us profound truth about what Jesus has done for us and what it means to follow him. Jesus commands us to humble ourselves and serve others as his followers because he came into the world to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, including us. Well, just as this theme is significant in the Gospels, so too it is significant in the rest of the New Testament. And the reason that it is significant in the rest of the New Testament is because the application of this teaching is central to our identity as followers of Jesus, and it is vital to the health of every local church. 
when the Apostle Paul wrote to the local church in the city of Philippi, he impressed upon them this very teaching. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8, Paul wrote, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We will never comprehend the depths to which Jesus condescended for us. We will never comprehend how far he went to humble himself for our sake. His humility in the incarnation is extraordinary in and of itself. The fact that the king of kings was willing to humble himself by coming to earth, taking the form of a man, a servant, being born as a baby to young poor parents in a room meant for animals is absolutely, positively extraordinary. The degree to which he humbled himself in that way is by itself amazing. But it did not stop there. He continued to humble himself by becoming obedient. He became obedient. The king of kings became obedient. And not only did he become obedient, he became obedient to the point of death. But if that wasn't enough, it was not any kind of death. It was death on a cross. Now the Romans crucified people because they believed it was, and they rightly believed, it was a horrific way to put someone to death. It was an absolutely horrific way to execute somebody. It was so horrific that for the most part, they would not crucify Roman citizens. And they would crucify people to send a message. They would crucify people because it was an utterly humiliating way to die. It was utterly humiliating and shameful, and it was excruciatingly painful. And that is the way that Jesus died. He was willing to endure utter humiliation and incomprehensible pain, and he was willing to do so for your sake. He was willing to do so in order to save you. How far are you willing to go to humble yourself, to serve others? You will never go anywhere near as far as Jesus did for you. You can never humble yourself anywhere near as much as he humbled himself for you. You can never serve to the extent that he served you. So brothers and sisters, we need to understand that humility and servitude are essential, essential qualities in the life of a disciple, in the life of a follower of Jesus, and therefore we ought to look for opportunities to humble ourselves, to serve others for their good and for God's glory, not ours. I believe we are being provided with many opportunities this year to do so. We are being provided with many opportunities to humble ourselves. It has been a difficult year. It has been a challenging year. 
But opportunities abound for us to humble ourselves to serve others. Let's not miss those chances. Let's not waste this difficult season by insisting on our way, by putting our preferences over and above others. Instead, let's apply what Paul said in Romans 15, 1 through 3, where he wrote, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who who reproached you fell on me. Christ served in such a way not to please himself, but to please, to serve, to build up others. And we are to follow in his example. And as we do so, as we humble ourselves, as we serve others, as we look not only to our own interests, but to the interests of others, as we're willing to lay down our preferences and agendas for the good of others, we will become more like Jesus for his glory. May it be so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for Jesus, whom you sent into the world to save sinners like us. We thank you and we praise you that Jesus was willing to humble himself for our sake. He was willing to serve. He was willing to give himself up. He was willing to endure complete and utter humiliation. He was willing to suffer unimaginable pain for our sake. We are the beneficiaries. And therefore, we pray that you would grant it to us to walk in humility, to take on the mindset of servants, not so that we can have people pat us on the back, but so that we can bring glory to your name. We pray that will be true of us, and we do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.